Last night, a, a psalm uh, came to me. It's a, such a short one, and I'm going to read it. It talks about, I guess, why we do what we do as a church. And it's, David says, shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness and come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God, and I love this line, it is he who has made us, not we ourselves. I think it stands in such contrast to the thinking of this world. It is he who has made us, not we ourselves. We are his people and we are the sheep of his pasture, so enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name, for the Lord is good, his loving kindness is everlasting, and his faithfulness to all generations. And it's kind of that message that I see the Gospel of John is all about. That the Gospel of John, that John writes that we would know this love of God for us this grace of God, this mercy of God for us. And I like the fact that so many of the songs this morning also spoke to the fact of this incredible prize that lies ahead. Um, you know, God reveals himself as the great I am. And this sense that there will come a time when this life is over that we will literally share in the glory in which Jesus currently sits at the right hand of the Father. That we will share in that glory. Uh, John, we've been in John for quite a while, and this morning, uh, John 17 is, is the passage that I've been been asked to talk about, and in it, John records a prayer of Jesus. In fact, the whole chapter, John chapter 17, is his prayer. And as I thought about that, uh, as you read the Gospels, especially quite often you hear about Jesus removing himself, often to go up into a mountain to pray, to spend time with his Father. And as I was thinking about this prayer, it struck me of this incredible intimacy that Jesus shared with God, his Father. And most times it just says Jesus went away, away to pray, got away from the crowds, headed up into the mountains to pray. But here in chapter 17, it's like we are invited into a prayer of Jesus. That John recounts and records this prayer, and we get what strikes me as a glimpse into the heart and the mind of Jesus. And in it, Jesus asks God to protect. He asks God to guard those who have expressed their faith in Jesus as the revealed Son of God. And it says, if Jesus knows that the walk of faith, 
the walk that we walk as children of God will be and always is an ongoing battle for both our hearts, those things that we hold dear, and a battle for our minds, those things we hold to be true. The walk of faith is all about those two things. Our hearts and our minds, and in a way, that is what this book of John is all about. And so it's as if John says, I want you, I want your hearts and minds to be aware of the heart and mind that Jesus has for you. Love is mentioned some 80 times throughout the book of John. The call to believe or belief is mentioned about a hundred times. That we would not only know the incredible love of God, but that we would truly believe that he came to us full of grace and full of truth that our minds would actually find rest in that. So we need to guard what we love. We need to guard what we believe because in a very real way, the world in which we live is highly invested in influencing those same two things. That the world in which we live and walk and have our being is also invested in trying to attract us to other things. That we would love other things and that we would begin to believe other things. So we are in this battle always for our hearts and for our minds. And I believe that if you even have a sense of what that battle is, it means that you are fighting the good fight of faith that Paul so often talks about. That if you know that there is this struggle, there is this fight to remain true to our faith and to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind, if you understand that battle, then you are fighting the good fight of faith that we are called to fight. And John strikes me as a man whose heart and whose mind were incredibly well guarded. That John refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. And I think about that as such a sweet way to see yourself and a sweet way to describe yourself as one who Jesus loved. And this morning I would pray that you would say the same thing in your heart and in your mind, that you would know the never-ending, overwhelming, matchless love of God for you, revealed in Jesus Christ. Remember last week when Stephen spoke, and he, he spoke about being overwhelmed by this sense that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so John's gospel is that we would know that love with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind. 
neither power, neither life nor death, neither things present, things to come, not things seen, not things unseen. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And as I read John, even as his heart seems so well protected by the love of God, so too was his mind. And you may say, Doug, this isn't about chapter 17, but I, I will get there. Because I believe that Jesus' prayer is about also grabbing our hearts and our minds. But I want to spend a few minutes about how John's mind seems to be so convinced of the truth of Jesus Christ. And his introduction to his book is brilliant. And I remember so often sort of reading it that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and being a bit confused by that. Then people would say, well, the word just means Jesus, and then I would keep going. But there is more to John's introduction, and to me, it's all about the mind of John trying to influence the mind of the people he's talking to about the greatness of God and the reality of Jesus. And his reference to, in the beginning, was the word... And even his reference to in the beginning would have grabbed the attention of his listeners and of those who would have read what he wrote. That this reference to the word, and probably in your Bibles, though that's capitalized, it's not a reference to the words that he physically spoke. It's not even so much a reference to what we will call the Bible or the Word of God, but it is a reference to Jesus himself as key, as central to the biggest questions people ask about life itself. About the how, about the why, about how we are to live Ravi Zacharias, and if you know that name, you will know that Ravi Zacharias is, I think, one of the incredible voices defending the Christian faith of this generation. Unbelievably powerful uh, thinker uh, who speaks so powerfully about the Christian faith. And he says that the Christian faith so beautifully captures these big questions that people tend to ask, questions about origin, about what about in the beginning, what is that all about? The questions about meaning and purpose, questions about morality, how then are we supposed to live, and ultimately the questions about destiny. And it's interesting when John says in the beginning was the word. The Greeks would have understood that as logos. 
And the fact that John used that word is like he is throwing the door open, wide open, to the big, you might say, philosophical or existential questions of life. In the beginning was Logos, and Logos was with God, and Logos was God. I have this quote, it's not anything that I created, that simply says this, Logos in Greek philosophy and theology. This conversation about Logos it's a conversation about the divine reason implicit in the cosmos, ordering it and giving it form and meaning. And it became particularly significant in Christian writings and doctrines to describe or define the role of Jesus Christ as the principle of God active in creation and the continuous structuring of the cosmos, and in revealing the divine plan of salvation to man. It underlines the basic Christian doctrine of the pre-existence of Jesus. So when John would have used that word, it was full of meaning to those who would have understood this concept of cosmos. And John is saying this divine reason, this divine principle behind everything that was created is in fact in Christ himself. And John says in, I think, 114, the word logos became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, full of grace and full of truth. And I think there's an interesting parallel that John draws between the first few verses of Genesis, which also starts in the beginning. And in Genesis, there is this revelation of Jesus and God the triune and the spirit of God all present in the beginning. That the earth was empty, without form, void. And the spirit of God moved over the face of the deep. And out of the darkness he created light. Physical light. Talking about creation. And John says... In the beginning was Logos. In the beginning was Jesus. Jesus was with God. Jesus was God. And this Jesus who came has brought with us not him, not physical light, but spiritual light. Spiritual life, spiritual truth. And those he would have spoken to if they were of a Jewish background would have been so aware that John is actually comparing what he's speaking to the, in the beginning, which the Jewish audience would have known right away. Oh, that's how our books, that's how our holy book starts. And the Greek philosophers and thinkers would have thought, oh, he's talking about the very things we often wonder about. 
And John says, you know, we walked with this Logos. We walked with Jesus. We beheld his glory. And we are convinced that he is both full of grace and he is full of truth. That Jesus is meant to capture our hearts and he is meant to capture our minds. And it's as if John is saying the Logos is not a, physical, a philosophical puzzle to be solved, but it is a person to be believed. A person who was not created, but is from everlasting to everlasting. I find that concept so beyond my understanding, this concept of being from everlasting to everlasting. And the fact that I can't understand it gives me great peace. That I am truly believing in something, someone, Jesus, who so far surpasses my human understanding and my knowledge that I am happy to rest in him. And so John is saying, Jesus is that which your thoughts are trying to grasp. Those questions about origin, meaning, morality, destiny. Jesus is that answer. John says, Jesus is the way and the truth that your minds are trying to figure out. Jesus is a logos. And the heart of John's letter is that we would know Jesus' love for us and that we would truly believe it. John chapter 17 gives us such a beautiful glimpse, this prayer into the heart of Jesus. And I want to be careful not to overanalyze it or to pick it apart. I think sometimes this is one of those chapters that if we were simply to read it, especially in a translation where it is pretty clear, um, it speaks for itself. But I just want to make some observations. Things that stand out for me as I read this prayer, and it's a prayer that Jesus prays on his own behalf. There's something very personal about this prayer between Jesus and his Father. But it's also a prayer he played on behalf of his disciples and those who believed him while he walked on earth. And then it's also a prayer for the church. It's a prayer for you, it's a prayer for me, for those who would continue to believe in Jesus as the revealed Son of God, as the way, the truth, and the life. And firstly, as Jesus prays, he acknowledges that he has done what God has asked him to do. And Stephen talked a bit about that last week. But he says to the Father, I have been obedient to what you asked me to do. To all that it meant for Jesus to have taken on human form. To humble himself and to serve the very creation he created. And as Jesus prays and as John recounts this prayer, Jesus knew he was about to be unjustly condemned. 
And Jesus knew he was about to die a violent death and carry with him the sins of the world. He was about to experience separation from God the Father. But even as this all lies in front of him, Jesus also knows that his crucifixion would lead to his resurrection and ultimately that he would return to God the Father. And so it's sort of the heart of Jesus pouring out to God his desire to once more be with him as he was in the beginning. So the prayer to me speaks of this joyful intimacy, this incredible relationship between God the Father and Jesus the Son. A joyful oneness that I think we can only imagine. But the truth of this prayer is that Jesus wants us to know that same intimacy. After saying all these things, and so that would be pretty much everything that he said up to chapter 17. Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one you have given him. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. It's this heart of Jesus to return. In Philippians, I think Paul speaks to that great theme so beautifully. The theme of the humble servant of Jesus, who for the joy set before him was willing to endure the shame and suffering of the cross. That every knee should bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that today Jesus sits enthroned with God as he was in the beginning. And that Jesus today remains from everlasting to everlasting. And his great desire is that we too would experience that same closeness and intimacy that he shares with God. We would know that in our heart of hearts and in our minds that closeness with Jesus. We sing that song to know the overwhelming, never-ending, I'm going to use the word matchless, love of God. Secondly, in this prayer, Jesus prays for those who believed in him while he was on earth. So he's praying for his disciples. He's praying for the men and women and children who would have believed in him 
as he walked on this earth. And he prays on their behalf, knowing the challenges and the intense persecution that they will face. And he prays, God, I am not asking that you take them out of this world, but that you guard and protect them from the evil one. For they are not of this world. Uh, I think that's another phrase that if you truly can relate to that in terms of who you are as a child of God, if you truly feel, you know what, I am not of this world, that is such a good thing. In the same way that I am not of this world. And Jesus goes on to say, guard their unity and may my joy fill them. So Jesus prays that this group of men and women who had come to accept him as Logos, as the ultimate revelation of God, who have come to accept Jesus as their spiritual savior. He said, would you make them holy? Would you consecrate them? Would you sanctify them in the truth? A people set apart to show forth the glory of God. And in this prayer, even as Jesus fulfilled the mission that God gave to him, Jesus passes this baton, this baton to serve, to be part of this mission to his disciples and his followers, to continue to speak about what they have seen and what they have heard. To establish his church. To establish a kingdom of spiritually reborn men, women, and children. To establish this kingdom that is not of this world and is not like the kingdoms of this world. A chosen race of people who know no race. No racial barriers. A people who would simply love him, obey him, love one another, and show forth his glory. Now much of that prayer for his disciples and those who walked with him, you might say, That's, that feels like it's for us too, and I would say, yes, it is. But in the last part of the prayer, Jesus actually addresses us specifically. And Jesus prays for the church itself. He's praying for those who would come later. Those who would continue to believe this message of the cross, of the resurrection the truth of the one true God and his revelation in Jesus Christ. And his great prayer for us as I read his, his words to those who would come later is that we would be unified. There is such a strong theme of unity that as his church, 
as his people, we would truly experience the oneness and the unity that Jesus shares with God, his Father. That that love, that oneness would impact the world in which we live. It is this great uh, example, I guess, of a city on a hill shining brightly for the glory of God. We're part of that city and we're asked to shine brightly. Jesus says, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. I am in them, you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Jesus prays that we would love God with all our hearts and minds. Prays that we would love each other. A love expressed in the unity of the church. That we would be willing to embrace things we cannot see. That we would be willing to embrace with our minds things that surpass our understanding. That we would embrace the greatness of our God. A God whose ways, whose knowledge, whose wisdom is so far beyond us. Let your minds as Christians not only be okay with things you don't fully understand, but may you actually find comfort, strength, and rest in the surpassable greatness of our God. God who is the great I am. Jesus, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Let your finite mind find joy in the infinite. I think about that and I think, wow, God, help me to live in that space, in my heart and in my mind. May my finite mind find joy in that which is infinite. In a Father who is the great I am. In Jesus who is our good shepherd. A wonderful counselor, prince of peace. Heart of Jesus is that we would truly know the matchless oneness that Jesus experienced with God the Father. That we would experience great joy. That the joy Jesus feels in the presence of God the Father would be a joy that we would also feel. The overwhelming, never-ending, matchless love of God that is ours in Jesus. For God so loved the world that he created. 
And every man, woman, or child who believes in him will not die. But they will inherit eternal life, and we will share in the joy of the risen Christ. We will exchange that which is temporal for that which is eternal. We will exchange that which is corrupt for that which is incorruptible. We will exchange those things that perish for things that are imperishable. We will see him as he is, and we will be like him. I'm going to invite the the worship team to come back up. John is sometimes uh, referred to as a book of signs, and there are many signs that John refers to. And you know, signs, you might say, tend to come and go. But there are two signs that remain And I'm going to say they are the sign of the cross and they are the sign of the empty tomb. Two signs that will always be there. And as Paul would repeat so often, our message, our hope, our victory is the crucified and risen Jesus. And he's saying to those who would read his book, let your heart and mind find peace in this Logos. Let them find peace in Jesus. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, I pray that those things that are true would truly settle in our hearts and in our minds, that we would know your matchless love for us. That, God, there would be times in our day, whether it's today or throughout the week, when we would be overcome, knowing that we are loved by you. And Father, I pray that you would speak truth into our minds and that we would see truth apart from everything else that we often hear. Help us cling to that which is true. Thank you for this book. In Jesus' name, amen.